Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 358 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is our good old buddy Raphael's episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that much like our friend Raphael from the old We Are Not Here to Please You days out there in Finland, where we've always liked to jokingly say, we're big in Finland, it turns out that the country calling code for Finland is... Three, five, eight. And with that wonderful little bit of Raphael Finland International Calling Code, Country Code Knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. For a second, I thought you were going to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Hmm, I didn't realize that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were originally from Finland. No, they're not, but one of them is named Raphael. Oh, okay, yeah. See, I forgot to make the painter connection. Oh, Raphael, and then the painter, of Donatello, course. Michelangelo, right? I mean, you know, yeah, Leonardo. They're all painters, so yeah. that's what's up. Do you ever have you been watching that toy the toys that made us show on Netflix? That docu-series? I have been waiting for that stupid documentary series to come back. I binge-watched the first season, air quotes if you want, because they're only like 28 minutes long, and there was only four episodes. And I'm like, as soon as I was done, I'm like, come on, there's like tons of stuff you guys haven't done. Like, you could you could switch to um, all sorts of different things. And I had listed like, they're like 45 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Are they 45 minutes? See, they were so good, they just... They just flew right by. Didn't even realize that they were that that long. But yeah, I was like, like, dude, you could do like My Little Pony for the girls, and you they could did. do, you know, um, in this one they did. Yeah, it's the third season, and they did third season. It's only been one. No, it's the third season. There's Hang been on. two two seasons before Hang this season. The they do My Little on. Pony, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the wrestling figures. And uh, one other one, I can't, I'm, it's escaping my mind. All right, I'm looking right here. It loaded up. I guess I did watch the first two seasons really fast. Yeah, I did. Okay, see, I thought it was all one season. I'm sitting here going, because, yeah, they did Star Wars, Barbie, He-Man, G.I. Joe in the first season. Um, and I remember calling my dad. As soon as I watched the G.I. Joe episode, I was like, Dad, you got to check this show out. Um, and then I turned immediately around and watched season two. So that was Star Trek, Transformers, Lego, and Hello Kitty. And that was when I found out she was British, of all things. Oh, Hello Kitty? From, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I was just sitting there. I couldn't believe I was going to have to wait for so long. Oh, that is so cool. It is season three. Look at that. And they did My Little Pony. And they did My... Yeah. This is great. Okay, cool. So my girls will love this because they loved the My Little Pony stuff back when it came back around in the last decade. Sure. Um The Friendship is Magic, you know, right? Is that, I, whatever. It yeah. was on in the background enough. It so gave birth exciting. to the bronies. Yeah, the bronies, because we talked about that on one of our episodes. That's like one of our episode titles from way back in the day. Oh, man. Yeah, because we were talking about how like Weird Al was on there, and Q from uh, John Delancey uh, was on there. So anyways, though, how the hell are you? So I uh, went and saw the movie Motherless Brooklyn over the weekend. Did you catch a trailer for that flick? Motherless Brooklyn. 
It's the one with Edward Norton. He has Tourette's. Takes place in no. Brooklyn back in the, I think in the fifties, late forties, early fifties, and he's working. He's really good with memorizing like numbers and words, and basically his memory is fantastic. And Bruce Willis is this private investigator. He hired Edward Norton to listen in on his conversations to remember key details. And something horribly goes wrong at the beginning of the movie to where Bruce Willis dies. And so Edward Norton, with his crazy Tourette's, has to go and pretty much solve the mystery as to why Bruce Willis was murdered and what he was actually investigating. It's actually pretty interesting. Wow. It has poor ratings on... Rotten Tomatoes and a lot of the <laughs> uh, and, a, and a lot of the average Joes were complaining that it was too long and the movie is well over two hours long, but it's a very good adult noir mystery. And that's exactly what Edward Norton was willing to accomplish. He wanted to accomplish something like Chinatown, where it was mature, noir, there's a great mystery, and it also ties in some uh, historical elements as well, which I also liked. So any of you out there that are big fans of Edward Norton, um, and, and Alex Baldwin playing a bad guy, uh, this would be good for you. William Defoe is in it. One of your favorite character actors is in it as well. I'm trying to remember wow. his name. The jizz guy, the cum guy from Sex in the City. Oh, funky tasting spunk. Yeah. Yeah. Damn it. You gotta be kidding me. All right, let's see here. Annie... 2014 movie because i know he's like a he's like Wait, was that, that quote from annie no 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 it's not <laughs> it's just i remember that he was in the movie bobby cannavale there you yeah. go i just remember he's like the da or something in that in the annie remake so it's like i missed that song from annie funky tasting spunk <laughs> funky tasting spunk the funky tasting spunk <laughs> well what else could we talk about in a movie about a chili king who raced cars? I don't know. Chili King who raced cars. Oh, yeah. Make no mistake. People, you might think people know Carroll Shelby because he was a a, a, a race car driver that turned into a car designer. Uh, no, no, sir. No, people know Carroll Shelby because he made chili. Oh, I didn't realize we switched to Ford versus Ferrari. I mean, why not talk about funky tasting spunk guy? When we're going to talk about in the episode, in the same episode that we talk about, you know, the Chili King and his racing, you know, and his racing movie. So should this episode be titled Funky Tasting Chili King? <laughs> the Chili King and his Funky Tasting Spunk. <laughs> now, Matthew, I don't think your family is going to appreciate uh, that title. Oh, uh, well. I bought time. We we talked about this before. I bought time. I bought time. By the time they hear it, it'll be a few years down the road. They hated our Halloween episode so much that yeah. it's dead to them for three more years. Well, that's good. Glad that we got to, you know. And I guess at the end of the day, did you, you said it was an interesting movie. It was. It's not fantastic. Uh, once there, Once the love story starts cooking... Um, it kind of falls apart, but then by the end of the film, it all comes back together. A few of these story elements didn't really make a whole lot of sense, but overall, it's a very enjoyable film, you know, for mature people who don't mind sitting down for over two hours to watch a good story. It's like a time to kill, you know, that Matthew McConaughey movie that's well over two hours, but it's a very mm -hmm. good courtroom drama. We don't have a lot of dramas that are 
that interesting and that long in their runtime anymore. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I hate to keep bringing it back to the movies we're going to talk about, but I would argue that even racing aside, there was a pretty good drama in our racing movie. Oh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So, and that fit, exactly that fits the bill as well. That movie's well over two hours. Two hours thirty two minutes. Yeah, and it felt like five. And it and it, and it felt like I was driving the Le Mans by the end of it. <laughs> 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 uh, oh, and fun reminder. Uh, so as we record, um, it's the nineteenth of November, due to the wonders of technology and the power of the internet, as it were. Um, we get to remind you that um, by the time you hear this, you will truly be living in the future. Yes, the events of Blade Runner take place on November 20th, 2019. Ooh. And we're talking the original Blade Runner, y'all, from 1982. Oh, so you're not talking about Blade Runner 2049? That's right. No, not even, just in case there was any any kind of confusion there. That's right. The future is now. Or the tomorrow. The future is now. Or by the time you listen to it, was yesterday. <laughs> 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 Since it doesn't come out until the 21st. But whatever. Ah, yes, you'll be living in the future, folks. <sighs> anyway, all right. Well, then how about we go ahead and dive into some news, sir? Dive away. Here we go, folks. It's the news. All right. So, yeah, first up and only up from me, I've got a wonderful little bit of movie history here for you. This uh, article is dated yesterday, the 18th of November. Uh, it comes to us from Collider by way of Brendan Michael. Ben-Hur, still a captivating spectacle on its 60th anniversary. Yes, Brendan writes, the old adage, they don't make them like they used to, applies more aptly to 1959's Ben-Hur than almost any film of its era. On an epic, I'm sorry, an epic on a scale never before seen, it survives now like a Hollywood time capsule. Watching it through modern eyes is a constant reminder of a bygone period of filmmaking. Today marks 60 years since William Wyler's larger-than-life picture hit theaters. Made on an enormous budget then, $15 million, the movie was a tremendous hit despite a runtime of about three and a half hours. For millennials and Gen Zers, Ben Hur is a movie for their grandparents. The world, mo- the world has moved on, after all. No need to go back and consume such antiquated art. One can't help but wonder: in 2019, what about this movie so appealed to audiences then, and why studios haven't bothered developing anything of its ilk in eons? So the movie, uh, basically, the article goes on to discuss the history of the movie getting made. Uh, this was actually a remake, believe it or not, of a 1925 silent film. And the original director was supposed to be a silent film director by the name of Sidney A. Franklin with Marlon Brando in the title role. And so due to some script 
changes and issues um, that all the timing fell fell through, and then uh, Weiler ended up coming on board instead, and Charlton Heston was cast as the lead, and so um, you're actually getting to see one of the uh, one of the first movies uh, that was shot on what they called the MGM Camera 65, which, according to the article, uh, is an anamorphic lens producing a much wider aspect ratio than had been the norm until its introduction two years prior. Uh, it says here that Weiler and DP Robert Surtees took advantage of the extended scope as often as they could, capturing so much allure across the pastoral Italian countrysides and hills and sets dressed up first as first century Jerusalem, rendering the film a beautiful work of art. And then, of course, what's the most well-known work of art from this movie? The Chariot Race. And the Chariot Race, there's just so much weight to it. Uh, they go into the story of the film and why there's just so much behind what they're doing for this chariot race. And I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen the film, even though there's been, um, it, there was a kind of a chintzy remake a, a few years ago, 2016, I think. And there's been other stuff that they've done since then. This is kind of the, version of the film that takes the cake really um because they didn't have a choice but to do it in a practical fashion back then and so practical effects they did you can really see uh charlton heston and some of the other actors who are doing this thing and they're really doing it uh the weight of the story that's driving judah ben-hur who is a wrongly accused uh jew and he's basically working his way back uh from the depths of despair and has his chance at revenge and that's what is at stake here in this chariot scene and even though the film carries on and in its own way is kind of a jesus movie of the day a biblical jesus movie it, the the film does its work through the eyes of Ben-Hur, not through the story of Jesus. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it endures so well. But there are a lot of different things to remember about the film, including the fact that you've got um, brownface, in the film, uh, Hugh Griffith is a Welsh actor who plays, uh, Sheik Idaram, um, and ends up getting best supporting actor for it. There's even a debate to this day about whether the Judah Masala relationship is actually a homosexual one. Apparently, and this is from the article here, that, um, in 1995, Gore Vidal, one of the script, uh, eventual script writers, uh, made the claim suggesting that he, Weiler, and Boyd were in on it, the latter being directed to play his role as a spurned lover. Heston would deny all this, leading to a public spat between he and Vidal in 1996. And closing out this article here, it does say that controversies aside, Ben-Hur exists today as a memento, yet still a blueprint on how to tell an ambitious tale. It's a big budget adventure and a character piece. It's a biblically reverent film and it's aimed at a broad audience. And no, neither Ridley Scott's Exodus, Gods and Kings, nor Darren Aronofsky's Noah meet this criteria. 
Western culture shifted, technology evolved, entertainment transformed. They don't make them like they used to because they can't. Art reflects the time in which it was created, making the preservation of it so important. So long as it's still accessible, we don't need more movies like Ben-Hur. We already have them. And so, Tim, I just was wondering, I know you've seen this movie, of course, and I don't know how long it's been since you've seen the film. What do a you while. think about Ben-Hur? It's a good movie. That if they were going to remake it, they should have done a better job. I agree. Did you see the remake? No. Yeah. It was a little tough to watch. It didn't look good. <laughs> so, but no, I just think it's a really interesting thing that I like that Brendan Michael in the article really acknowledges the fact that um, it's just not a movie people today would even think of seeing. And I don't even think that today's younger, uh, the up and coming film buffs and film historians would really think to look at a movie like this and analyze it for anything more than its technical scale. But there's just so much work being done in the script, and there's so much work being done um, in this story that I don't necessarily think it's fair that a lot of people today would dismiss it. I think that um, a movie like Ben-Hur makes the case that and I don't want to turn this into, you know, stop doing remakes or whatever. But I think that it does make the case that movies like these are worth watching on their own. I don't think that, um, I, I don't think that it's fair to say we shouldn't be remaking movies when this was going to be a remake of a silent film from 1925. So it's pretty evident that even at this time, uh, by 1959, when the movie comes out, you're uh, 30 years past, 34 years past, and look, they're doing remakes. Oh, wow. Well, you know, Blade well, Runner was What was a was remake 19- that made sense, you know, to give it sound and a bigger budget? Sure. And it's a remake that makes sense in 2016 with it being able to show scale like none other with our CGI. In 3D. Um, yeah, 3D. And... Uh, I, I just think that uh, it's not to say that it's not to get on the stop doing reboots train and remakes train, but I would say that I think that it shows the value of the original piece. It shows sure. why movies like this tend to get remade. Well, and so, the, the scale of the movie technically is amazing because for that chariot race, they had a build that it's not a cathedral. What's that area called where they race the the, the track and the the stands and those big the Coliseum? Yeah, the, yeah, the Coliseum. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I went there for my honeymoon. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean the the big statues. I mean all the ornate decor. They had a build for that film, and then when he watched the remake, it's a CGI fest. It's a blue screen fest. It doesn't capture that practical spirit that oozes from uh, the original film. That's my theory of why it just does not live up to uh, the original film. And I don't even see them being able to make a film like Ben-Hur now with that vast scale. I honestly, I think you're right. I don't know that you could... Uh, I just don't know that it could get done. And I, I... Oh, let me rephrase that. I just don't think there's anybody brave enough to back it. Sure. Yeah. So... 
Anyways, yeah, well, that's my news. Thank you uh, for indulging me while we discussed it. Take it away, You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) ViaVariety.com. Disney Plus warns users older movies have outdated cultural depictions. Written by Letitia Harris, and this was published on November 13th, and it says this. The newly launched Disney Plus has no shortage of content, ranging from original animated classics to live-action remakes and Star Wars offshoot The Mandalorian. With the deep library, Disney is offering a warning that some of the streaming platform's older content has, quote, outdated cultural depictions, end quote. Films like Dumbo, The Aristocats, Lady and the Tramp, and The Jungle Book, some of which were made nearly 80 years ago, offer a disclaimer saying, quote, This program is presented as originally created. It may contain outdated cultural depictions, end quote. Since its initial release in 1941, Dumbo has been criticized for including a version of vocal blackface, while the Aristocats and Peter Pan have been the subject of scrutiny for racist depictions of characters. Some Twitter users noted that Warner Brothers movies have included a similar message that says, quote, the cartoons you are about to see are products of their time. They may depict some of the ethnic and racial prejudices that were commonplace in American society. These depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. While these cartoons do not represent today's society, they are being presented as they were originally created, because to do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed, end quote. Disney's controversial 1946 film Song of the South, which inspired the ride Splash Mountain and features the song Zippity Doodah, is entirely absent from the platform, presumably due to criticism for its depiction of freed slaves. Disney Plus currently offers over 500 films and television shows. Since its launch Tuesday, the streaming service has signed up over 10 million users. And that article ends there. However, if you hop on over with me to Disney Plus warns of outdated cultural depictions in some films, but some say that's not enough, which was published in Cron.com. That's the Houston Chronicle on November 13th as well, written by Marissa Latie. Uh, And that was actually via the Washington Post. You will find that some people are criticizing the disclaimer, saying that it's not enough. For example, it says here, others have criticized Disney Plus for not being direct about what the content warnings are referring to, especially when compared with language used by the entertainment company Warner Brothers Entertainment before some of its Looney Tunes cartoons. Barron said he would like to see Disney use more explicit language to acknowledge that a film includes biased depictions of a certain racial group and urge viewers to talk about those representations. Disney could include discussion questions online to accompany the movies, Barron said. Some films that reportedly do not contain warning notices, like Aladdin, should have them added, Barron said, and the warnings should also apply to films with problematic representations of gender and sexuality. Yada, 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 the article goes on from there. Matt, what do you think about all this? What do you think about the disclaimer? Uh, Do you agree with this Baron guy that 
the disclaimer, what the disclaimer includes simply is not enough. I know we've talked about this before. Do you think a simple disclaimer is enough? I think in this particular context, yes. Um, People, Disney is a big enough company with a large enough history that even little kids uh, know they've been around forever, right? And so I, I think with just by virtue of exposure to our society and our culture, um, I would even venture to say Western culture on the whole, forget just the United States, um, that it's already implied that maybe some of these movies might be old and might not be relevant or worse, might be deemed offensive in some way. Um, the fact that Disney merely acknowledges them for the 1% casual viewer that, for whatever reason, doesn't already know this and gives them a heads up. Yeah, I think that's good enough. I mean, I think, I think that's good enough. Um, could it theoretically lead to a kid on the, watching it on the kid side? Because I have Disney Plus. You can set things up so that there's a kid filter. So yeah, I suppose could a kid watch the original Dumbo on the kid filter and mom and dad didn't know about it? Yeah, I suppose. But even then, I gotta be, I gotta be honest with you, I still think it's enough. Um, you know, do they need to do the Warner Brothers thing that we've talked about before? Eh, I don't know. But if they took a page out of that book and decided to extend it, then that's fine too. I'm just gonna say yes, it's enough. I think so too. Uh, if people are concerned about this, especially young people, they can talk to their parent. They could talk to their friends. They could talk to a family member. They could talk to, they can just Google it, you know, and learn about it online. I think we also talked about this. It would be interesting for Disney to maybe produce a companion documentary when they, you know, like talking about the history of their films and some of the mistakes that at the time was more acceptable culturally, you know, for white culture, I suppose. I think that would maybe make, you know, some sense to where maybe also in that little disclaimer, they could say for more information, check this out, you know, watch this documentary or go to this website. You know, I just don't think it has to be a five page long disclaimer. It doesn't have to be more than one title card. Simple and sweet. So people actually read it and are able to understand it. What else you got for us, sir? Matt, were you a big fan of Suncoast Motion Picture Company, the mall store? You're damn right I was, sir. I mean, it was literally, it it was truly, how can I put this? The Nordstrom of of, of movie stores. Overpriced. It, I mean, it was overpriced, but they also had a, they also had usually the most curated stuff. Um, and they also had really good selection of things like movie posters, uh, other paraphernalia and stuff. Sometimes they would even have like certain collectible items and, um, you know, really unique stuff and not just dumb novelty things either. So I, I, yeah. Um, I always loved hanging out at Suncoast. Uh, I will say that, you know, as a teen, I couldn't always afford any, uh, anything in the Suncoast, but anytime I could, oh yeah, I snagged it. It was great. Second question for you. What do you think about the town, the city of Beaumont? As in Texas? Yes. Oh, um, 
you know, I got family that's from there. <laughs> um, I don't know anyone in my family that lives there anymore, but uh, I got family from there. I guess you could say I have nostalgic feelings for Beaumont. But All right, so you won't find yourself ever in Beaumont then? Not, not likely, no. Okay. Well, if you were to find yourself in Beaumont, Texas at some point... Via TexasMonthly.com, the Suncoast Motion Picture Company's Last Stand is happening in Southeast Texas. This year is written by Sean O'Neill and published on November 14th. And it says this, I used to buy VHS tapes at the mall, the shopping center's heyday as the center of suburban life is well behind us, with thousands of shuttered dead malls becoming objects of morbid online fascination. VHS is similarly obsolete, not just as a technology, but as a philosophy, as more and more people have made peace with never truly owning a movie. Streaming and online shopping, both conveniently offered through Amazon, have killed this once quintessential consumer experience. Unsurprisingly, it also took Suncoast Motion Picture Company with it. Suncoast launched in 1986 as Paramount Pictures, a tentative alliance between the eponymous Hollywood Film Studio and Musicland, an erstwhile monolith of mall-based entertainment. Their arrangement would last only a couple of years, but the concept they tested proved to be slightly more enduring. At the time, everyone from grocery stores to U-Haul had experimented with renting videos, but no one had quite figured out how to sell them primarily because VHS tapes were still insanely expensive, usually going for around 80 to 100 bucks a pop. But when Paramount released Raiders of the Lost Ark for just $39.95 in 1983, generating thousands of pre-orders, it proved there was a sell-through market for VHS that was only semi-ridiculously expensive. So dedicating an entire store to selling movies, much like Musicland had done for music, seemed like a logical gamble. And though it officially broke away from Paramount in 1988, the newly reborn Suncoast Motion Picture Company continued to thrive throughout the 90s, eventually commanding some 400 locations in its prime. Today... Just a few of those sun coasts are still in existence. One of them stands inside the Parkdale Mall in Beaumont, where it's lingered for decades now. It's the only sun coast for many hundreds of miles in any direction, with its estranged sister locations all in states like New Jersey, North Carolina, Nebraska, and Ohio. Somehow it survives even as the franchise, the industry that supports it, and the entire concept of a mall that surrounds it continues to falter. Um, and the article does go on for quite a bit more. They even feature uh, an assortment of pictures from within Suncoast, uh, as well as a couple original commercials, promos for the uh, video store. Nowadays, you can find, other than Blu-rays and DVDs, you can find like the Funko dolls, action figures, t-shirts, hats, a lot of anime uh, stuff, it looks like. But I thought this was pretty interesting. I remember going to Suncoast and the Woodlands Mall. I thought there used to be one down in San Antonio, but I'll never forget 
the late 80s, early 90s retro feel to it with the carpet all over the place and the pinkish red neon light glow that just filled the entire store. Um, a lot of fun memories going in there as a kid. I never really was able to buy anything since everything was jacked up in price. Well, I mean, it was fun that you used to go there. I mean, would you go there mainly to look around or would you actually buy products? It, it really would just depend. If I had the money that I could get something, then I would. But generally, it was just you know, browsing, window shopping, because like you said, I mean, was, a lot of the stuff was, I mean, geez, the average cost of a movie, even in the uh, even in the mid 90s was like it was like 30 bucks sometimes 40 bucks and you know that's a lot to ask a teenager to cough up for just the one movie um in, in the mall especially when you go down to blockbuster and rent one for the weekend for three so sure. um yeah but i mean like i said though sometimes though i didn't go for the movies i went for the posters uh for the paraphernalia for uh, some of the cool props and stuff that you would see and even just and, and even on occasion you would kind of get to know a couple of the people and just go talk movies i mean whereas you could sure you could go down to your blockbuster or your hollywood video or your mom and pop video store and maybe have some fun talking with you know the the latest uh blockbuster movie if you will um you would go and talk cinema. You would talk film at Suncoast. And, uh, you know, you kind of felt like you were a little better than everyone else by going to Suncoast. So, yeah, it was cool. Maybe I will go down to, maybe I will go down to Beaumont and go check out the last Suncoast. Do it. Interview them. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, it's nice to be uh, near the last of something. I mean, right? You got to go to freaking Bend, Oregon to get to the last Blockbuster. So, yeah, why not? No, I'm, no, I'm close. That's happy. Well, if you want to read more about the last Suncoast store in Texas and one of the last in the, in the nation <laughs> there in Beaumont... Check out the Texas Monthly article, The Suncoast Motion Picture Company's Last Stand is Happening in Southeast Texas. Then I guess without further ado... Oh, yeah, what are we doing next week? I guess let me check and see. Oh, yeah, more news. More news next week. Uh, so that's good. And, um, uh, yeah, so I guess we should talk some movies. What do you say? Let's talk it up. Here we go, folks. It's the movie we all right well this week's movies are dr sleep and ford v ferrari with a possible mention of jojo but i'm not sure uh yes where do you want to start sir dr sleep or ford v ferrari well you said you saw joker right I did. I saw Joker. I finally got around to seeing Joker. Well, I mean, I, I saw Jojo Rabbit like a month ago uh, during its limited to release, limited release out here in L.A. I loved it. It's Taika Waititi, the guy behind Thor Ragnarok, What We Do in the Shadows, The Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, there's a great mix of drama, comedy, and there's there's a lot of heart behind the the film. It's basically about this kid who is one of Hitler's young elite and his imaginary friend is a flamboyant 
Adolf Hitler, played by Taika Waititi. As the movie goes, he discovers a Jew that his mom has been hiding up in the attic of the family home, in the attic of the family home. And the Jew is about uh, young Jojo's age. So it's a wonderful film. If you have a chance to go check it out, please do. It's something you've never seen before. And I'd be curious to know what you all think of Jojo Rabbit. Well, excellent. So where would you like to turn now, sir? Oh, but what did you think about Joker? Oh, um, you know, Joker was a really interesting movie. Um, I miraculously managed to avoid every damn spoiler for this movie because it took me like three weeks to get around to finally seeing it. Um, it is a... Three weeks? Has it been out for three weeks? At least. Oh, wow. Okay. Um... Well, I guess I find out. Joker. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter, really. Well, it does now because now you got me doubting myself. Um, uh, yeah, October fourth. Okay. So, month and a half. <laughs> Which is pretty impressive to not come across any spoilers. Yeah. So way more than three weeks. Um, but um, yeah, I uh. I will say it was definitely a very interesting film. I think that it takes a very interesting look at mental illness, but I think it takes a very interesting look at mental illness through the lens of the early 80s. And I think a lot of people miss that because there's been a lot of speculation and a lot of discussion about how improper it was to showcase mental illness the way that they did. And I don't think that they are taking into account when this movie is supposed to be taking place. Um, just the what is being dealt with. So it was really interesting to see. I also kind of liked that they sort of twisted the... Um, they kind of twisted the old formula on the Batman origin by giving you a reason to not necessarily like the Wayne family quite as much. And um, just kind of watch how one person can change the world for good or ill without really even meaning to is pretty cool. Um, So there's a lot of really cool themes. But... I also kind of felt like the movie missed the mark on a few areas. Um, enough to say that the movie's not worth seeing? No, absolutely not. Um, but enough to say I don't necessarily think it's the masterpiece that everyone is hailing it as. Agreed. Um, you know, so, hey, I'm, I'm, but I will say these boutique thrillers and stuff, please, please, please keep making more of them. Please keep making more of them. Clearly, if the Joker has managed to pass a billion dollars worldwide, it's you got to make more movies. But don't just make random comic book movies. No, it. I think I think the name recognition and I think the Joker and then I think it just turned into a juggernaut that just kind of built on its own momentum. Um, but the fact that the movie was only like a you know like a twenty million dollar budget or something like that. Um, please. You've just proven yet again that you can make a really good R-rated, mid, low to mid-range budget film, and it will do well. Make more. <laughs> 
So that's kind of where I land on that. Anywho. Ford v. Ferrari? Ford v. Ferrari. How long have we known each other, Ken? I ever break a promise to you? I will put you in the driver's seat at Le Mans. You just shut your mouth and let me do my thing. And that's it, folks. Ferrari wins the 24 hours of Le Mans for the fifth consecutive year. Mr. Ford, Ferrari has a message for you, sir. What did he say? He said Ford makes ugly little cars in ugly factories. And, uh, called you fat, sir. We're gonna bury Ferrari at Le Mans. So the great Carol Shelby is gonna build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. And how long did you tell them you needed? Two or three hundred years? Ninety days. <laughs> Ford hates guys like us because we're different. He's difficult. Ken? No, no, Ken's a puppy dog. It's awful. There's a problem. The computer will find it. Get some scotch tape and a ball of wool. What are they doing? Making your car faster. Ken Miles is not a Ford man. We're on the verge of something. And now you tell me that I can't have the best man in the world behind the wheel? Give me one reason why I don't fire everyone starting with you. Well, sir, we're lighter, we're faster. When that don't work, we're nastier. Go ahead, girl. Go to war. You got a plan. It's high risk. I thought the whole point was to win the damned race. So, Ford v. Ferrari, um, which might have been titled uh, Le Mans 66, where if you're getting this, you know, out in Finland, perchance. Uh, it's 2019 American Sports Drama. It's directed by James Mangold. And it stars Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Now, I will say that there are a lot of really good other actors, character actors thrown in here. People who would, um, who play characters that would become absolutely monolithic in their own right. Uh, John Bernthal for, thank God. The man finally got to be something where he's not trying to be a hick, um, an action star, or a soldier. I just honestly at this point did not think it was humanly possible. But thank the Lord, um, or whatever deity, if any, you are into, that John Bernthal was cast as Lee Iacocca, of all things. Um... You've got uh, Josh Lucas in a very good villain role, I think, in this film. Uh, or at least cast as your foil, your villain, if nothing else. I mean, there are dramatic licenses taken as uh, Leo BB. And I think Tracy Letts, who plays Ford, uh, Henry Ford II... <laughs> I don't even know how they seriously got a the deuce as he's known in the huh. <laughs> who the hell thought that was a good idea um i mean i I get that it's Henry Ford the second, but come on, you know you know people were not colloquially and in a congenial way referring to him as the deuce um whatever 
And then, of course, in the lead roles, you have Matt Damon as Carol Shelby, uh, Chili King. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, American automotive designer and engineer. Uh, perhaps you might have heard of the Shelby Cobra. Um, you might have even been familiar with that all the way back from Gone in 60 Seconds, depending on how old you are. Good old Eleanor. Uh, that Carol Shelby. Uh, Shelby Cobra. Uh, you've got Christian Bale as Ken Miles, a uh, race car driver. And it's basically their story. It's called Ford v. Ferrari because it takes the rivalry that came out of Ford's attempted buyout of Ferrari in the late 50s. Um, uh, late 50s, early 60s, rather. And um that failed buyout led to Ford wanting to take Ferrari down. Um and so how did they do that? Well, they needed to hire Carol Shelby to design some race cars, and who are they gonna get to work with Carol Shelby? Carol Shelby needs to go and get uh Ken Miles. Unfortunately, Ken Miles is a wild card. Um <laughs> sorry, I was just thinking of it's always sunny. Wild card! And he's not exactly well-liked by a lot of people other than Carol Shelby. Uh, shenanigans ensue, and it's all about trying to make sure Ford beats um, Ferrari in the Le Mans 24-hour race that happens in France annually. Um, first and foremost, let me say that... This is a fantastic movie with probably one of the most understated bastards ever to be played so brilliantly. And you might be thinking, ah, you must be referring to Christian Bale as Ken Miles. And I say, nay, nay, sir. I say Tracy Letts as Henry Ford II. Oh, my God, I wanted to hate that man so Badly. Tracy Letts, I don't, I know nothing of Henry Ford II. Know nothing about him. But if Tracy Letts did any kind of research and played it to the, just even the slightest degree of accuracy as being portrayed in this script, holy crap, I have never wanted to love, to, to love and hate someone. To love to hate someone so much and so long as Henry Ford II. Um, Tracy Letts, I mean, I would love nothing more than a Best Supporting Actor nomination to come out for this guy. You should see this movie just for him. Uh, and he doesn't exactly play a small role either. I would say he's got on the upward end of about 12, 13 minutes of screen time, all told. And in a two and a half hour movie, I mean, yeah, that's not a whole heck of a lot, but it's enough that the presence, his presence is felt throughout. It is definitely him driving it. And he starts off early in this film, setting the damn tone. And I mean, yes, you got to hand it to James Mangold for directing the scene so well. You have absolutely got to hand it to Jez Butterworth, John Henry Butterworth, and Jason Keller, who wrote the screenplay uh, for creating and crafting such amazing lines. But sometimes you've just got to hand it to the man or woman who delivered the freaking lines. And Tracy Letts does it 
in spades in this film. Now, got the set, you got the stage set, you see what you're dealing with, you understand the company you're up against. And then you've got this dynamic between uh, Carol Shelby and Ken Miles. And honestly, you can see at, at first you can, you wonder how close they really are. And you kind of get a chance to see how deep their friendship really went over time. And I think that that was very, that was a very clever choice because you don't necessarily want to know who exactly to root for. Do you root more for Carol Shelby and what he's trying to pull off? Do you root more for Kevin Miles and his dream? Um, and his principles, if you will, do you root more for them versus Ford? Do or is there something more to it? And I think that it's really nice that you kind of get a chance to see them both on their own, and then as the movie brings them closer together, you see that their friendship has much more deeper implications than was originally implied. Um. And it's just so excellently crafted. Um, the only, really and truly, the only problem that I felt with the movie is that I think they, I, I really think that they just kind of used Josh Lucas a little poorly. Now he plays Leo Beebe, who is a, again, he's kind of like, air quotes the bad guy he he and ken uh leo and ken do not hit it off very well um and it's it's showcased so that you can see ken at his worst but you can see just how far leo is willing to take it um and the thing is is that Instead of just letting Josh Lucas be a bad guy, and he does a great job too, make no mistake, he does a bad job. If he doesn't get some kind of notice, at least his hairpiece should, because, oh my god. But, I think that he, I just think he is used more as, the character itself tends to fall into plot device territory instead of real villainous territory. And it's not Josh Lucas's fault. Uh, I think it's just the way it was written. And so you're really just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, and then you just know, oh, well, here comes Josh Lucas, or here comes Leo, which means um, something bad has to happen. So let's move the story forward in this way. And they don't quit, even all the way up until the end. Um, I think there's also some excellent crafting done to really showcase why people who don't like racing love racing movies. And I think that has just as much to do with um, fin- Feed on Papa Michael, the cinematographer, as it does with James Mangold. Um, and remember, this is a guy who did Logan. Uh, he's also done great movies like Walk the Line, the 2007 remake of 310 to Yuma, and even other unknown hits or lesser known hits like Copland uh, and Girl Interrupted, which were critical darlings, but not necessarily super huge box office smashes. Um, and then also stuff like Kate and Leopold, but whatever. Um, so... It's just, yeah, it's really a well-put-together film. It's got a few minor flaws in it. I I can't really give it a five-star rating. 
Um, but I can sure as hell give it four and a half. It's a great movie. Um, no pun intended. Hell of a ride. I think you'll enjoy it. Christian Bale does a fantastic job. Matt Damon does a fantastic job. Um, and just all the way around, well put together film. Four and a half out of five. What do you got there, Tim? I agree with pretty much every single thing that you said. I give it a four and a half out of five as well. There's a lot to like about this film. Uh, despite its faults, it's a very entertaining two and a half hour long movie. Um, however, if you know the true story, you might think that there was a lot of missed opportunity, I guess, to really get the characters and to get the history uh, uh, down correctly. But if you're not familiar, it's an entertaining, fantastic film. Um, I know a little bit about the true story due to a documentary that I saw not too long ago. A couple documentaries that I've uh, I've seen not too long ago and a few articles that I read. There's just more to Ken Miles and the friendship between him and Shelby, as well as more events leading up to 24 Hours at Le Mans. And if some of that other information was included... I think the film would have been richer, might even had a little bit more of an impact. However, I cared about these characters. I cared about these friendship. Everybody was fantastic, not a loose screw in the bunch. I do find, however, that with movies like this, they always have to incorporate some kind of corporate bad guy. Um, That felt a little shoo-end. To me, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense for Henry Ford to keep a guy like that on, since Henry Ford in this movie came across as the as the type of guy that would see this work out firsthand you know so him allowing what's his name to continue to screw things up or to attempt to screw things up didn't make a whole lot of sense to me because it seemed like carol shelby had a little bit more of an upper hand uh when it came to his relationship with henry ford the deuce so that was really the only thing that bothered me within the terms of the film itself. But again, I give it a 4.5 out of 5. I easily could have watched it for another 30 minutes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was enjoying the heck out of that movie uh, and didn't even... And I knew going in it was a two and a half hour movie. I honestly did not even realize how uh, how much time had passed. I was like, wow, is is it over? So, yeah, definitely great. Um, all right. Well, then, last but not least, we've got Dr. Sleep. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... They come back. How many ride the bus this far north? You're running away from something? I'm running away from myself, I guess. Hi. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These empty devils 
They'll eat what chance. And they've noticed that little girl. coming dr sleep um this is a 2019 american horror film eh. um it's based based on the 2013 novel the same name and is a sequel to stephen king's the shining which came out in 1977 now all right this is going to take a minute. Let me get through this part first. It's directed by Mike Flanagan. Uh, film stars Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, and Cliff Curtis. And really does its best to reconcile in, again, two and a half hours. Also two hours and 32 minutes, just like Ford v. Ferrari, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, really tries its best to reconcile a movie Stephen King hated with the film everyone knows um so let me go into this a little bit here um and i briefly talked about it before but now that we're really covering the movie proper let me get into this so in 1977 stephen king writes the shining um huge success whatever shortly after the uh, about 1978ish uh, Kubrick decides that he wants to do a horror movie and by God, he's going to do one. His choice was to go ahead and do the shining. He thought, Hey, Stephen King writes good stuff. It's good horror material. Let's go. And so Stephen King writes the screenplay. Kubrick says, eh, and basically tosses the screenplay out, has his own script doctors come in, completely reworks the screenplay, and then he makes The Shining that the world kind of ends up falling in love with over time, becoming one of the greatest, considered one of the greatest cinematic horror masterpieces ever. Um, King was understandably pissed. So uh, he finally gets the rights back. He makes sure that the rights reverts back to him. And then in the late 90s, 97-ish, he gets Steven Weber and they redo The Shining with Steven Weber starring and they turn it into a miniseries on TV. And this is absolutely faithful to the book. Fast forward to 2013 and Dr. Sleep is released and it is a direct sequel to the book the Shining. Um, the book, like I was talking about before, it's not a bad, it's not a bad book. I honestly wouldn't really qualify it though necessarily as a horror novel. I think that it is, uh, a continuation of the eternal struggle that is alcoholism and how it can, how, the sins of the father kind of a thing can carry on the plot of the, the actual just story itself is really kind of simple. There's not any, you don't ever really feel like there's any high stakes 
in the book. Despite the powers, despite the true knot, despite everything else, uh, and Jack's kind of growing as a human being, and now you're kind of seeing him as an adult work things out. The book simply kind of carries itself and it's like, oh, okay, so this happens and we overcome that and then we overcome our next obstacle, we overcome our next obstacle and yay, our hero wins. Um, and, and it's not a, it's not bad, but I mean, I just, it's kind of simple. And, and as I said before, sometimes that's all you need. Sometimes you just want a simple story. The, you know, the bad guy shows up, the good guy overcomes the, uh, the obstacle, defeats the bad guy, and we have a winner, right? And that's cool. But as a major advancement on the original story, I really just think it's more about the demon of alcoholism, which is what really drove, um, Stephen King to write The Shining in the first place. Now, we get to this movie. And you all see the trailer. And then the trailer does everything it can to reference the original Shining, the movie. And I'm sitting here going, how the hell are they going to reconcile a movie based on a book that's a sequel to a book that never really had a movie? Well, here's how they do it. They take the first two-thirds of the book of Dr. Sleep and they make arguably one of the best movies I've ever seen based on a book. Like, I honestly, about by the two-thirds point of this movie, I thought I was finally going to have another movie to add to the list of movies that were better than the book. And we did a three-squared on that a while back, but I was like, wow, I'm actually going to have that. And then the two-thirds mark happens, and then they just go, okay... Throw out the rest of Dr. Sleep, and now we'll settle the story that happened in the movie you saw from 1980s, The Shining. And that is how they reconcile this movie. And when they do it, they start by raising the stakes from the book. And I'm like, okay, I'm not sure I agree with the decisions being made here. But I will absolutely say that the stakes have been raised. And for that... I am supremely like, wow, this is good. But then the from that from that point on, they've raised the stakes. But when the final battle occurs, they they don't really they they don't finalize what those stakes meant they raise the stakes but then there's no payoff there and more and more importantly there's no real payout and you just kind of feel like the movie truly the way they wrote they they realized they had boxed themselves into a corner and just didn't really have any other way to go with it um and so the end of the movie is nothing like the end of the book um, and it's not necessarily a bad ending, but it's an ending that simply feels forced. It simply feels like they just didn't have any other way to go. Um, and so I can't really give it anything better than a four, and I'm really pushing it out of four. Um, I don't feel it's, you know, we've kind of, tossed out the quarter star rating if i could give it 
I mean, if I really wanted to drill down, I'd give it a 3.75, but we're not doing that anymore. I don't feel like it's worthy of a three and a half. That's not fair. Um, but I can't go any higher than a four. So I'll settle at a four. Um, the end of the movie is just not where it should be, but man, the build up to it is phenomenal. So take from that what you will and 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 no twist ending there's no twist ending on it by the way i don't want to imply that and i don't want you to set up for something that's not there i want you to enjoy the movie non-spoiler um if that's your bag and bring us home there tim it's really not a very good movie i never read the shining i never read uh dr sleep i'm fully aware that Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is very different from um, from uh, uh, from uh, Stephen King's original book. What I liked about Doctor Sleep, whenever they had to show you flashbacks of original characters from The Shining, um, they used all new actors. Jack Torrance, played by a different actor, that tried to do his best. Jack Nicholson, uh, the lady who they got to play Wendy Torrance. They tried to, you know, she overacted her little heart out trying to be like, oh, shoot, what's her name? Who played Wendy Torrance, the mother. And Shelley the, Duvall. Yeah, who tried to play Shelley Duvall. Oh, daddy. Oh, you see her doing that. And it's a little bit ridiculous. What would have been nice is if they followed the events of The Shining. But just you already have different actors. Just portray the actors differently. You know, portray the characters differently is what I, is what I mean. Um, I think that would have been uh, better for me. However, if I went to see this movie again, I probably would not have been. I probably would not be as bothered by it, uh, because I would have been very happy that they didn't do any of that CGI disage, uh, uh, de-aging or facial reconstruction crapola that we've been seeing a lot of because they easily could have done a digital scan or reference of Jack Nicholson and young Shelley Duvall to create, you know, these flashback moments. I did feel that the film was too fantastical. It plays so much more like a magical fairy tale than a horror story. Um, I thought Rebecca Ferguson's character, the hippie hat lady, was a little too much. Um, that that whole hippie vibe was overplayed, and I, it it felt like they were they were reaching for theming, you know, theming. We we need it. We need theming. We need these characters to come off a different way. Oh, have her act like a like a hippie cult leader. It just got a little old. Her little catchphrase is "Hey now." or hi now, or there, or there you are. I forgot what it was, but every time she said it got a little bit more predictable and ridiculous. Um, I also felt like the trailer gave away too much with trying to sell the film as being a direct sequel to Kubrick's The Shining. So everything that happens in the Overlook Hotel, it just spoils. The overall effect is spoiled because that's where really the heart of the movie takes place within the Overlook Hotel. Um, I felt there was no reason for them to go into the Overlook Hotel, and as what I'm hearing by your from your review, Matt, um, even in the book, there was really no point for him to go back to the Overlook Hotel. Um, oh, 
Well, okay. Let me jump in here. Um, well, okay. I'm sorry. You know what? I want you to finish so that I can uh, fill you in and then we can talk some spoiler stuff. Um, but yeah, I want you to finish first so you can get your... Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. And ahead. really the last thing I'm going to say is that I was excited to see this film because of Mike Flanagan's involvement. Mike Flanagan uh, directed the, the the and wrote The Haunting of Hill House, which was the fantastic horror uh series that premiered on netflix last year uh he also did oculus and hush and i hear gerald's game and the ouija origin of evil sequel was supposed to be great um so i was very excited to see this film because of his involvement his little touches i weren't i mean i just didn't feel his presence in this film um there was nothing scary there was nothing horrifying. There were some good moments, some good character work, some good storytelling. But overall, the film the fi- the film uh, felt blah to me. I'm giving it a three. I would like to watch this again whenever it comes out on DVD or Blu-ray to give it another shot. But first impressions, a three out of five. I was expecting more and it just simply did not deliver it felt more like genre fodder than anything else than than a true horror film so three out of five excellent no that works really well because now i feel better about the four because it averages out to three and a half which i think you know which i think is a i think that's fair on the whole so yay i'm glad that worked out um okay so Spoilers on Dr. Sleep from here on out, guys. Um, all right. So in the book, the Overlook was, um, is kind of like the center of demonic activity, if you will. But it's also, um, because of its history of demonic activity, it's also one of the strongest centers of where the true knot has their steam capabilities and everything. Um, and so they actually owned the land that the Overlook Hotel was ever, was built on initially. But the Overlook Hotel burns to the ground at the end of the original Shining in the book because the boiler explodes. So when they do the final showdown at the, at the Overlook, if you will, it's just the land. There is no Overlook. So they don't actually go back to the Overlook for the hotel they go back to the they go back there because it's danny facing down the demons of the actual area right where all the ghosts and stuff live and then uh the lady from the true knot and he they they have it out um and and so at least when they do it there there's there is a reason for him to be there but there's not even a freaking hotel to do it at it's just the land so and the, so again, in the book, at least it made sense, and they put it together. So, yeah, that's what's up. Oh, I see. Okay, well, that makes sense, I suppose. But does Danny Torrance die at the end no! of the book? No. And that's the other again, because sometimes you just want a simple story where the good guy wins. Good guy wins. Yeah, that felt a little ridiculous too. I mean, there exactly. Was just- it's like then the whole deal where suddenly he becomes possessed. Does that happen in the book? No. Yeah, that it just felt like they were trying to recreate The Shining. And it's mm-hmm. an absolute shame because I like the idea of the ghosts making a return. You know, 
I thought that was a nice little touch. I Ghosts just, make a return in, I, the, I, in the in the book. Oh, really? I, I just yeah. I, I hate 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 all the callbacks. It felt so forced, and it just felt like studio meddling than it did Mike Flanagan. I if, it's it's because they tried. It's because they had to. They well, I guess they didn't have to, but it's because Flanagan chose to combine the elements from the original Kubrick film. Um, so, for example, you know how Doc, or not Doc, how uh, the, the, um, oh. The cook, shit, the chef. The, yeah, what, what's his name? Uh, as Dick, uh, Dick Halloran. Yeah, Scatman Carruthers. Yes. From the original film. Um, so, he survives the first in the book he survives right all right so the stuff that happens at the beginning of the movie dr sleep is again adapted and again that's why i was like oh they they chose to make some really cool decisions um he's alive so they they actually talk it's not him appearing from the great beyond right and so it, it was just kind of, yeah. So it's because they chose it. But I will say this: I did, for what it was worth, in terms of actually, you know, like I said, that whole sins of the father thing. I actually liked the initial bartending scene, where, um, where, where Jack is serving Dan. Oh, I did too. I thought that was so, a nice little touch. Yeah, where he just became um, more aggressive and. At the end of that moment, when Jack ends up just taking the shot because his son wouldn't, or the spirit mm-hmm. of Jack. I mean, in the book, does he appear? No. Oh, really? No. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. And and of course, it's at that point, basically, um, the point where Billy is killed. You know, where where the girl says, "Kill yourself." Yeah. It's at that point that that literal moment that the movie completely breaks from the book because that line happens in the book but he but dan is able to save uh billy interesting yeah so yeah crazy but people love the movie it's not doing well at all at the box office but people love the movie yep oh it already fell off yeah it already fell off the top five radar it's had like a 60 percent drop weekend over weekend that's a shame, considering the studio already had plans for another one. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <sighs> Whatever. So anyways, yeah. But um, cool. Well, then I guess without further ado, time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, oh wait, no. No, it's not. Shit. Next week, the movies are going to be A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and Parasite. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Holy Shit. And now, and now, I believe it's time for the spiel, sir. Spiel on! You set him up and I'll knock him back, Lloyd. One by one. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. Say, Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily light. (laughs) How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. 
best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can, of course, comment board that information, superhighway, and track down Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old Spotify and Google Play and other podcasts directories if you'd like to support the show head on over to patreon.com and check us out over there and so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to rebecca ferguson i get to say this i'm very proud of my roots and i would never try not to be who i am take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you and I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.